0: Hey friends, Nina here. You may know me as the voice behind Already Gone, a true crime podcast about the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. In the 18 months since I started Already Gone, I heard many comments about my voice and how soothing it is to listen to me tell a story. That people re-listen to episodes of Already Gone at bedtime because my voice helps them fall asleep. When I heard this... It made me worried, worried about listeners and their sleep. Drifting off to violence, terror, and grief is not a recipe for dreams that will soothe and calm you. As someone who requires a good night's sleep to function well the next day, I am thrown off by troubling dreams, and it's not something I would wish on anyone. I was concerned that you, the listener, could be having those same troubling dreams, even if you don't remember them the next day. That's where Dreaming with Nina originated, in the value of a good night's sleep, a longing for peaceful dreams where you wake up in a happy frame of mind, your brain soothed and rested. I'm not a medical practitioner, so please, use your best judgment while listening and participating in the podcast. I, too, listen to podcasts, and I enjoy a good crime story as much as the next girl, but when it comes to protecting my psyche... I need a palate cleanser before bed. I hope that Already Gone has a valued spot on your playlist, but please, not at bedtime. There is something so rewarding and indulgent about a good night's sleep. But so many of us, up to 60 million Americans, struggle with sleep disorders. We aren't getting the sleep we need. Ideally, you should get at least seven hours of sleep each night. Now, that isn't the case for everyone, Some people function great on five or six hours of sleep, and others require eight or more hours to be functional. This week, we're looking at ways to better prepare for sleep. If your goal is improving the amount and quality of the sleep you get, I have a list of things you can try. If the list seems overwhelming, select one or two items to focus on, because while there are literally dozens of things to consider you know what is manageable and achievable for you. Just like learning to play an instrument or mastering a second language, it is important to learn to relax and unwind, because your body and your mind deserve time to refresh and recuperate. You should avoid excess caffeine, and if you do consume caffeinated items do so four to six hours before it's time to sleep. Now, I love a good cup of coffee or well-made chocolate, but these are morning or daytime items, not evening treats. If you're a smoker or if you vape, these are both stimulants and are best avoided in the hours prior to bedtime. If you wake up in the middle of the night, try to avoid smoking or vaping. Okay, I know you hear this one a lot. Get regular exercise. This seems to be the remedy for just about everything, but it's true. Exercising is important to keep your body healthy. It's also a great stress reliever. So if you're feeling overwhelmed at work or at home, finding time to center yourself with exercise can help. Is your bedroom dark enough? If city life, streetlights, or an odd work schedule where you're sleeping during the day are some of the challenges that you face in getting a good night's sleep, you may wish to invest in blackout curtains to keep the room nice and dark. I've seen sleep masks suggested, but no, I am not going to recommend that. I don't want anything on my face while I'm sleeping. Mm -mm, No. Another suggestion is to make your bed I know, it's counterintuitive, right? Why make my bed when I'm just going to mess it up again? Each morning, I take a moment and make the bed. Just a very quick arranging of the pillows and smoothing out of the sheets and blankets. There are no hospital corners, there's no throw pillows. Now, to me, there are few things more annoying than an uneven blanket sheet situation involving my feet when I'm trying to get comfortable. If your mornings don't allow you that 60 to 90 seconds to straighten the bed, try and incorporate it into your bedtime routine. Evening out the sheets, fluffing the blankets and pillows, it creates a better, more welcoming environment for rest. Change your sheets. Now, you should strip the bed and let the mattress and pillows air out while you wash your linens. I like cotton sheets because they breathe, they're better for your skin but you should use the bedding that you find most comfortable. Ideally, your sheets should be laundered at least once a week. Blankets can wait longer between cleanings, but if you have pets, you may wish to launder those more frequently as well. If you share a bed with your partner, are you dealing with a blanket tug-of-war? I've been there. I have fought the good fight. And let me tell you, it's not worth it. Don't battle. Don't tug. Get a second comforter or blanket so that you each have what you need to be warm and comfortable. Make sure that your room is at a comfortable temperature. A cooler bedroom will make it easier for you to sleep and rest. I keep a small fan near the foot of the bed. The breeze and the whir of the motor, that provides cooling and white noise and it helps me stay asleep. If you need to keep your bedroom door closed all night or all day or both, find times to leave the door open. This allows air to circulate and keeps the energy moving in the space. Without proper air circulation, the room will become stuffy, which is not a pleasant place to sleep. If you're trying to keep kids or pets out of the room, try using a baby gate, which will allow you to leave the door open and for air to circulate but stops unwanted visitors. If your bedroom is equipped with overhead lights, avoid using them at night, and instead use a lamp, which will cast a softer glow as you get ready for bed. If you have the option of installing a dimmer switch, this will work as well. When you're preparing for sleep, bright light is not your friend. Keep a notepad on the nightstand. That way, if you remember something that you need to do or have a brilliant idea... You can jot it down and let go of the worry that you'll forget. Hopefully, this list provides you with some ideas to improve your bedtime routine and lead you to a more satisfying night of rest. If I had to pick one or two items from this list, I would start with making your bed. Getting into a bed that's been prepared for sleep is so indulgent and comfortable. It's a treat for your body. Now, Settle in, beneath the blankets, in the sanctuary of your bedroom, in the safety of your home. Take this time for you. It is deserved, and you are worthy of rest. Tonight, I have a story for you, written by Joni Hubred, a Michigan author. This is an excerpt from her Nikki Nielsen series, titled Bury the Lead. The antidote for a brutally cold Minnesota winter exists in a perfect Minnesota summer day, when clear water laps along sand and gravel beaches, and wispy clouds skitter aimlessly across an endless blue sky. This was not one of those days. As I began my career as a reporter for the Northridge Press, the glorious dew from those 10,000 lakes that we are the land of formed a sweaty glue between my skin and clothing. I slapped at mosquitoes that had swarmed into my crappy hotel room through quarter-sized holes in the window screens, then checked my makeup in the cracked bathroom mirror. This steamy mid-July morning marked the beginning of my new life, and I wasn't about to screw it up. Again. My name is Nikki Nielsen, and hiring on as a voluntary slave at our small town's 50-year-old newspaper really wasn't my idea. But the opportunity to work with my uncle, Ernie Hansen, pulled me from the depths of despair after a messy divorce from one of the richest men in town. Jeffrey Carlson had found a way to commit adultery, move his mistress into our house, and still emerge with the lion's share of his fortune and his powerful reputation intact. I lost my home, my share of the company, and my position on the board. The final blow, losing custody of my four-year-old daughter, Kelly, to her cheating father and perky new stepmom, that drove me hard into the ground. Getting ready for my first day of work in months took all the energy I had. Fortunately, my career as a corporate officer had left me with an extensive professional and business casual wardrobe, so at least I had that going for me. Ernie hired me only after significant cajoling from my mother. True confession, except for a brief stint at the St. Cloud State University Chronicle, I have never actually worked as a reporter. Ernie had never hired a reporter, so to Mom, we seemed like a perfect match. Honestly, I think it scared him a little to take on a depressed, resentful, broken, and beaten divorcee, even if she was his only niece. I hoped the strappy tan sandals paired with a cream-colored linen suit and peach blouse would bolster his confidence in me. But then, I arrived 20 minutes late and blew the effect. Ernie bellowed my name just seconds after I walked in the door. I crept timidly into his office and found him looming over a massive oak desk covered in stacks and stacks of paper. As I found a chair, he walked around and leaned against the front of the desk, arms crossed over the front of his short-sleeved white dress shirt. Young lady, I know you're having some tough times, but that doesn't mean you get any special treatment here, understood? He punctuated the sentence by jabbing an ink-stained finger in my direction. I nodded, kept my head low, and grumbled a little inside. Just as the words, It's only twenty minutes, old man. Don't get your shorts in a bunch. Crossed my mind. Ernie bellowed. And I don't care if you're five minutes late or fifty— I get here on time, everyone else gets here on time, I expect the same of you. My head snapped up, and I met his stony gaze. After months of wallowing in pain, of not only giving in to, but encouraging my own suffering, someone finally jerked me up by the lapels of my Calvin Klein jacket and said, Life sucks. Let's move on, shall we? Truth be told, it felt pretty good. Now get your ass out to Rolling Oak Cemetery. Somebody tore the place up. It's a mess. Ernie growled, handing me a dusty gray camera bag that had been sitting on a shelf above his desk. Goddamn kids. Nobody ever desecrated a grave in my day. We had respect, and no time for this kind of nonsense. Graves of veterans, for Pete's sake— Men who gave their lives so these punks have the freedom to be assholes. Ernie's voice carried through the back of the building as I headed out. He served in Korea, God bless him, and had absolutely no patience for disrespect. As I turned the key to rev up my trusty but rusty Mercury Cougar XR-7, I realized that I didn't either. The drive to Rolling Oaks took about ten minutes, not quite long enough for me to fiddle with the radio knobs, so the dial remained at WNED AM, a local station that served Northridge, Ellendale, and Dakota in southern Dodge County. Owned by the Magnuson family, the place was literally kept alive by the patriarch Hank Magnuson, a barrel-chested man with a voice that rattled windows, and his tiny wife Edna A sweet tempered woman with large violet eyes, a crisply sprayed crown of blonde hair, and the screechiest voice west of the Mississippi. He handled the broadcasts, she sold the advertising. They supplemented their income by renting out most of the land on which the tiny white broadcasting headquarters sat. The four Magnuson children apparently had no interest in radio. So after 40 years, it was just Hank and Edna, and Ethan Mickelson, a 19-year-old college kid they hired to handle the night shift. With a soothing tenor voice and a great ear for indie and alternative music, Ethan quickly developed a strong and loyal following, including me. While that gave the station a boost, WNED's greatest source of revenue has been a steady stream of live high school sports broadcasts and religious programming. Long story short, WNED is not now and has never been a news station. So when I heard Hank's booming baritone interrupt a chorus of holy, holy, holy with breaking news, I cranked up the volume. Late last night or early this morning, vandals toppled gravestones and tore up the property at Rolling Oak Cemetery, just north of town on County Road 12. Northridge Police are investigating, and Chief Daniel Sullivan tells our reporter that the crime was likely committed by local teenagers. Stay tuned to this station. We will bring you updates as more information comes to us. As I later learned, Edna stumbled upon the crime scene while driving into town to call on a couple of regular advertisers about fall sports sponsorships. She chatted with acting police chief Dan Sullivan, who made polite conversation and shook his head a few times and agreed that, yes, most likely teenagers had done the damage. It never occurred to him Edna would call Hank and Hank would repeat the secondhand conversation on air. I knew none of that as I brought the Merc to a gravel-crunching halt in the rectangular cemetery parking lot. I only knew that I had been scooped on a stupid cemetery vandalism story on my first day of the job. It pissed me off. However, good Scandinavian Lutheran Minnesotans don't scream or yell or let loose a string of cuss words. And while I don't want a hair trigger, I wouldn't mind some kind of trigger, even a tiny valve that would allow a little steam to escape now and then. Instead, I turn all that energy inward, which probably explains the weight I can't lose. And some, or possibly all, of my domestic disasters. It may even explain why, as I barreled full speed toward a cluster of uniformed officers, I tripped over a small hunk of granite and sailed headlong into the grass. I pushed myself upright and assessed the damage. Green and brown streaks covered the front of my skirt. Blood leaked from a scrape on my kneecap. One of the straps along the top of my strappy sandals had torn loose from its mooring. Nothing felt broken or sprained, so I stood up and got my first good look at the damage done to Rolling Oaks Cemetery. All of a sudden, I didn't care who broke the story. What mattered was everything broken in front of me, the dozens of multicolored granite headstones and rows of ancient marble markers toppled and cracked. Large, jagged pieces of stone had been pushed into the ground. A loosely formed and glittering tesserae tableau. The bastards had even ripped branches from the trees and bushes around the property. This wasn't just vandalism, it was cruel wanton nonsensical destruction my heart broke for the families of those whose sacred memories had been desecrated and i swallowed hard as a wisp of fabric that had been a small american flag fluttered up from a charred heap of grave decorations laying close to the fence line are you okay a loud voice startled me and i squinted up into the bright morning sky a hand reached down to help me up and gently caught my elbow as I reeled back a little bit. Fine, I breathed, almost certain that wasn't the case. I quickly wiped the corners of my eyes. I need to see the chief of police. You're looking at him. Daniel Sullivan, at your service, ma'am. You must be Ernie Hanson's new reporter. And niece, Nikki Nielsen. I brushed at my skirt and swayed a little as I bent to retrieve the camera bag that had flown off my shoulder. Dan gently gripped my elbow and I looked up into a pair of blue eyes that twinkled like Christmas lights. The wiry, six-foot-tall Irishman had coal-black hair and a full-lipped smile that exposed blindingly white teeth. My heart fluttered unmercifully. Are you sure you're okay? He asked with a genuine concern. I can have an EMT here in five minutes. Honestly, I'm fine. I am just incredibly clumsy. I leaned away from him, from his steadying hand, and pulled a thin, narrow reporter's notebook and pen out of the bag. What can you tell me about this? He shook his head and took a deep breath that caught just a little at the end. I've never seen anything like this, but we'll catch them. We always do. As I formulated a follow-up question, a 40-ish, chestnut-haired man, dressed in a black suit and white shirt, caught my eye. Thick, dark brows beetled over his wide brown eyes, and he had a graceful look that bespoke either good self-care or an excellent plastic surgeon. The grim set of his thin lips as he picked his way through the wreckage told me he wasn't a casual passerby. Nikki, this is Joshua Benton. "'Pastor at Grace Lutheran Church. "'They manage the cemetery,' Dan said, extending a hand to greet the minister. "'Josh? "'Nicky is Ernie Hansen's new reporter.' "'Oh, this must break your heart,' I murmured as I shook Benton's hand. "'Actually, it makes me very, very angry.' "'Benton explained that Rolling Oaks had originally been a tiny lot, "'reserved for Grace members and their families.' As the congregation grew and needed a larger home, members voted to tear down the tiny white chapel, expand the cemetery, and open it to the public. A dedicated group of volunteers managed everything from plot sales to perpetual care. The blood, sweat, and tears of so many good, honest people built this sacred place. Before I could ask another question, Benton flashed a tight smile. Very nice to meet you, Nicky. I think quite highly of your uncle. Then he clapped a hand on Dan's shoulder and steered him away, speaking quickly and quietly. Feeling most unwelcome, I pulled the office cannon out of its resting place and commenced documenting the scene. When Dan caught up with me again, he rattled off details to fill a dozen notebook pages. At least two pickup trucks, possibly a third— Five sets of tennis shoe prints in the soft earth, reported by a woman driving home from working a late shift, who spotted the headlights bouncing through the cemetery. She pulled into the lot, flashed her brights, and they chased her back out onto the road. Age, city, workplace for witness? I asked brusquely. 29, Northridge, no comment, he replied. Why won't you ID her workplace? I asked, knowing the answer. Don shot me an exasperated look. Well, that's obvious, he drawled sarcastically. We want to protect her identity since the vandals nearly forced her off the road. I snapped my notebook shut. He might have been cute, but apparently Dan Sullivan could be a bit of an asshole. I asked so I didn't have to make up an answer. I've been told that's how journalism works. Without waiting for his response, I spun on my heel and stalked back to the murk, spinning the tires for good measure as I sped away. Before heading back to the office, I stopped by my room at the Viking Motel to clean up. The green, flat-roofed building sat just off a county road and attracted mostly cheating couples and hookers who paid by the hour. The manager reserved a few long-term rentals for folks like me who couldn't afford even the city's cheapest apartments. My nose had not yet gone blind to the revolting mix of smoke, alcohol, and other even less savory human odors that wafted as I opened the door. After cleaning up and bandaging my knee, I changed into a blue sleeveless sundress, slung a matching jacket over my shoulder, and headed back out. As I stood in Ernie's office and recapped my adventure... He chuckled and shook his head, then wrapped a long arm around my shoulders and squeezed. I heard him snuff a few times. Nikki, I don't mean to be rude, but did you fall in something? He asked, taking a step sideways. I'm afraid that's just me, I replied softly, or more accurately, the Viking Motel. Ernie's eyes widened. You're staying in that rat hole? I nodded and felt a blush of shame creep onto my face. He leaned over and grabbed a set of keys that had been hanging on a tiny hook under the long window that overlooked our reception area. The upstairs apartment ain't much, but it's furnished. There's a washer-dryer, some dishes, and pans in the cupboard. Rent is whatever you're paying those crooks. A lump caught in my throat, and I blinked away grateful tears. Speechless, I threw my arms around his neck and hugged him tight. He awkwardly patted my back, and I realized that I was embarrassing myself in front of my new co-workers. As I pulled away, I said, "Thank you so much. I can't wait to move in." Finish the story first, he deadpanned. You're still on the clock. An hour later, I nervously printed a copy of Vandal's Rack Rolling Oak Cemetery and handed it to Ernie. While he edited, I puttered around my desk, recycling old press releases, tossing bent paper clips, and crumbling rubber bands. Then I grabbed a bottle of spray cleaner and wiped the whole thing down inside and out. And still, Ernie wasn't done editing. I wandered into the front office and chatted with Marcia Thompson, Ernie's long-suffering office manager. The plump, motherly Swede's thick lips turned up in a perpetual smile complimented by bright blue eyes with crinkled corners. When she laughed, her cap of brown curls bounced. You are going to drive yourself crazy, Marcia whispered, handing me a sheet of paper. This just came in. Why don't you go meet Kate Johnson? She's a real sweetheart. I bet you two will really hit it off. Housed in the former North Cinema, the Northridge Historical Museum also doubled as a visitor center, which should tell you all you need to know about Northridge tourism. We're not exactly a destination city. We're more like the city you pass through to get to the destination city. But cinephiles occasionally make a pilgrimage to photograph the restored blade sign as its bright white bulbs and red and green neon letters flicker on at dusk. Kate runs the place, and from the moment we shook hands, she became one of my favorite people. We're built the same, but she has mastered the art of draping her well-rounded form with vibrant flowing dresses and perfectly coordinated jewelry. Only her rain-making ability exceeded her sense of style. Five years earlier, she almost single-handedly raised $1.5 million for the theater renovation project. I am so glad you stopped by, Kate chirped as we settled side by side onto an Art Deco daybed in the theater lobby. Ernie told me you were starting this week. He is such a sweet man. I grinned and leaned on my camera bag. Most of the time. She winked. I work really hard to avoid people who are in bad moods. Sucks all the joy out of my day. We talked about the Lutheran Churches of Dodge County exhibit, a grant-supported gallery of oversized historical photo reproductions mounted on thick particle board and display of artifacts from a dozen Norwegian, Swedish, and German Lutheran churches, large and small. Kate had even trucked over a perfectly preserved 1860 stained-glass window imported from Germany for a church in Harrison, our county seat. Do you have anything on Grace Lutheran? I asked nonchalantly. You must be doing something about the cemetery vandalism. I am. Do you want to see the photos? They're still on my camera. She leaned over my shoulder as I clicked through the images on the cannon's two-inch display. Even at that size, she could clearly see the depth and breadth of the damage. And it seemed to knock the wind out of her. Just as Ernie took personally the desecration of veterans' graves... Kate mourned the loss of historic grave markers which bore the birth and death records of many county pioneers. I saw tears in her eyes as I put the camera back and slung the bag over my shoulder. Kate walked me to the front doors and we stood for a moment looking out into the sunlit day. Hey, just curious. How did you hear about the vandalism? I asked. She smiled friend in the police department. He knew I'd be interested in the grave markers. It felt like Kate had more to say. When she didn't, I smiled, thanked her for her time, and walked back to work. Ernie had dropped the vandalism story on my desk, and as I stood staring at the sea of red ink, the camera bag slipped off my shoulder and landed with a thud on my chair. A tiny squeak escaped as I picked up the two-page document and assessed the damage. Literally half the story was gone, just gone, and not a single sentence had survived unscathed. I double-checked to make sure he hadn't corrected the spelling of my name. Slowly, I lifted the camera bag onto my desk and sat heavily, resting my forehead in one shaking hand while flipping the top page up and down. Ernie had taken a convenient coffee break, which gave me time to absorb the blows. He'd apparently tried to lighten me up with a thick red arrow that sprang from the circled third paragraph and pointed to bold red letters scrawled across the top of the page. Never bury the lead. I had no idea what that meant, so I asked. Okay, well, look at that third graph, like you're a reader, not a writer. Ernie directed, and I did. What does it tell you? I thought a minute. It tells me what happened at the cemetery, the damage. So you want that information at the beginning. You gotta catch people's attention right away, Nikki. It made perfect sense. I've returned library books within hours because the first page bored me to tears. The rewrite, it took almost as long as the editing— but as I finished, I could see how much better the story flowed. I actually enjoyed reading version two when I got past the burning resentment. I leaned back in my chair and rubbed my eyes, then jumped when Ernie tapped me on the shoulder. Come on, Ernest Hemingway. Time for lunch. The boss is buyin'. Five of us, me, Ernie, Marcia our composing department manager Helen Thomas, and Cheryl Sanders, who split her time between typing at the speed of light and providing a warm welcome to anyone who stepped through the front door, sat around a rectangular table wedged into a corner at the back of a Northridge legend called Benny's Diner. Suddenly famished, I settled on a BLT, because I love a BLT, but hate cooking, even if it's just a few strips of bacon. A bird-sized waitress of indeterminate age darted through the maze of tables, carrying a tray with five ice waters, mine with lemon. She set steaming coffee cups in front of Ernie and Marcia, which told me they must be regulars. Ernie introduced me, and Thelma Thompson's leathery, wrinkled face lit up as she switched the empty tray to her left hand and extended her right. She walked away with our orders, and I turned to ask Ernie about her story. He was busy glaring across the room at a table of old men who were glaring back at him. So, what's up with the old guys, I whispered. Ernie shook his head, loosening a few strands of snow-white hair that fell across his lined forehead. Damn geezers, he muttered. Beg pardon, I whispered, certain I hadn't heard right. Geezers, that's what I call them. They call themselves the Northridge Improvement Association bunch of malcontents with nothing better to do than bitch about everything under the sun, he said. Ernie rested his crossed arms on the table and leaned in my direction, as he named them one by one. Roger Olson with an E, Ollie Olson with an O, Jerry Mayer, and Nels Eyed. They gathered for coffee at Benny's Diner every weekday morning, he said, and once a month for lunch around the same square blue formica-covered table four pairs of calloused hands wrapped around white ceramic mugs of coffee so strong you could probably use it to remove rust. The geezers, Ernie said, had an even more annoying habit, sending overwhelmingly negative and surprisingly well-written letters to the editor. I've always had a sneaking suspicion that one of the wives gives them the once-over, Ernie said. The way they talk, hell, Nikki, they're ignorant. That's all just ignorant. Well, they're old farmers, right? All that time around pesticides and fertilizer? Pesticides don't make you mean, Ernie snapped, as color fluttered in his broad cheeks. There's just no excuse for some of the crap they've written. They disrespect for our city people, for our president, and I have to publish it. I patted his hand, hoping to lower his blood pressure. Ernie took medication for it, and I knew this wasn't helping. Unk, it's your newspaper. You have the right to refuse to publish any letter. The dailies don't have room for every letter they get. There's no guarantee. Tried that once. Won't do it again, he said quietly and tightened his lips. I wanted to ask more questions, but one of the geezers had decided to pay his respects. Ollie Olson with an O struck me as a ringleader, the kind of guy who wrangled bulls and inseminated cows and birthed calves with equal enthusiasm. A map of broken blood vessels crawled across his flat, wide, sunburned face. A bright green John Deere hat tipped slightly back revealed a broad, lined forehead with a long white scar that cut into his hairline, probably from bull wrangling. Extending a hammy hand, Ollie introduced himself to me and almost completely ignored Ernie, which came as no surprise. I referred to myself as Ernie's niece, a move that emphasized his rudeness and, I hoped, would distance me from the tainted legacy of my failed marriage new job, new apartment. Why not a new identity? Oh, you're Jeff Carlson's ex-wife, Ollie said, and I deflated as quickly as a pierced balloon. That's a cute little girl you've got. I saw him and his girlfriend having dinner with her the other night at Pinewood Steakhouse. As I searched for a pithy rejoinder, Ollie turned his attention to my uncle. So, Ern, you got our letter for this week? Ernie tipped his chair back on its legs the way my mother used to tell me not to and looked up into the old farmer's face. You mean that big sack of bilious, bigoted bullshit? Yeah, that landed on my desk. I almost kissed him. Ollie just chuckled and walked away, back to the table where he raised both hands, palms up, like a minister letting his flock know the service was over. At just that moment, Three teenage boys pushed their way into the restaurant and made a beeline for the geezer's table. All three wore Northridge high-letter jackets, royal blue and white, and trendy, ripped blue jeans. The clear leader, a lanky, long-faced lad with a crew cut, white blonde hair and a pointed chin, wide forehead, and patches of cystic acne across his cheeks and neck, stretched out his arm and pointed a bony finger toward our table. In a voice that rose above the din in the restaurant, he called out, Hey, Gramps, there's that asshole from the newspaper. Every head in the place swiveled in our direction. Ollie swept his arm wide and smacked the boy's face with the back of his hand. I winced, not only at the awful sound, but the embarrassment he must have felt. Despite the bright red bloom on his cheek, the boy remained rigidly unresponsive. His friends stood behind him snickering until Ollie glared at them. You don't use that language, boy, you hear me? The old man snarled. An uncomfortable silence rolled across the restaurant like a dense fog. Ernie laid his napkin on the table and stood up. Ollie, take your family business home, he said quietly. One of the geezers touched Ollie's arm and Ollie jerked away. He squeezed the boy's shoulders with his thick hands and guided him toward our table. "'Kevin, you apologize to Mr. Hanson,' he said. Up close, I could see the faint blue-green of a healing bruise lining the boy's jaw. Kevin looked directly into Ernie's eyes with an almost frightening arrogance, made more unnerving by his perfectly even tone of voice. "'I am truly sorry, sir. I know better than to use that kind of language.' He shifted his glance and flashed me a grin that made my skin crawl, then allowed himself to be marched out the door. Ernie sat down and wrapped shaking hands around his coffee cup. He didn't say another word. The rest of us shared a little uneasy business-related chatter. Even though I wanted to smack that boy myself, watching Ollie backhand him had left me shaken and curious. After we walked back, I sauntered into Ernie's office and gently closed the door. "'So, that boy,' I said, settling into the worn, green-plastic-covered armchair across from his desk. "'I'm betting he gets hit a lot.' Ernie swiveled away from his oversized computer monitor to face me, rested his elbow on the edge of his desk, and propped his cheek on his knuckles. "'Kevin is Ollie's grandson,' The Olsons took him in after his mother was killed in a car accident a few years ago. Dad disappeared after serving some jail time right around when Kevin was born. I nodded. Dad was Ollie's son? He was. And Kevin is following right in his father's footsteps. How so? First day of summer vacation last year. He and those two idiots he leads around by the nose thought it would be funny to blow up mailboxes. Ernie said with a wry smile. Kevin drove Ollie's old Cadillac east on County 10. One of his buddies, Charlie Walker, sits in the middle lighting fuses, and the other, Craig Burgess, leans out the open window and drops them into the mailboxes, right? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, I interrupted. Wait, Ernie growled. It gets dumber. Kevin dared Charlie to hold on to the M80 until the fuse was almost gone. Damn thing went off just as Craig tossed it out the window, took off a finger, and he nearly lost an eye. I sat back in my chair, shaking my head. Tell me someone pressed charges. Ernie shook his head. Long story short, the chief of police talked the mailbox owners out of pressing charges, and Craig's father figured his son had suffered enough. Boy, Danny Sullivan was fit to be tied. He fought with his boss for a month, almost turned in his badge. I'm glad he didn't. He's going to be a much better chief than Ivor Olson ever was. I had so many questions, but the sound of Dan's name triggered an epic blush. It fluttered across my chest and neck, then climbed into my face, where an absolutely uncontrollable smile appeared. I have a terrible poker face. My new boss noticed. Damn, Ernie grumbled with a disgusted look. I was afraid of that. Second time that day, a man read my mind. It was getting spooky. I have no idea what you're talking about, I said, and didn't even convince myself. Watch yourself, young lady, he said as I stood to leave. That would have been the smart thing to do, but as you'll soon see, I almost never do the smart thing. Thank you for listening to Dreaming with Nina, and sleep well, my friends.